What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Catch us weekdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm Kimberly Robinson, alongside Lydia Wheeler. June Grasso is out this week. Ahead in this hour, we'll discuss the latest in the saga to remove the oldest active federal judge from the bench. But first, we'll discuss the battle over the abortion drug Mifepristone, which has worked its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court again. Joining us now to explain is Lori Chayton, a senior staff attorney at the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project. Lori, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So I wonder if you could remind listeners about how this case got started. What does this drug do? Who is challenging it? And briefly, what's the gist of their claims? So this medication, it's known as mifepristone, and it is a drug that is, has been safely and effectively used for more than two decades by five million people in the United States through five presidential administrations after it was initially approved in 2000. It is used for abortion care, and it is used in the treatment of miscarriage. Um, and this it has been on the shelves for decades. It is an essential medication and, again, has been approved for a quarter of a century. The lawsuit is being brought by a group of anti-abortion physicians and groups that brought a lawsuit in Amarillo, Texas, apparently seeking to put this case before Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, who has a history and a record of anti-abortion, anti-LGBT, anti-civil rights rulings. They filed the lawsuit about a year ago, and they may, tried to make the argument that going all the way back to the initial approval of mifepristone in 2000, that the drug should be lifted from the market, claiming um, based on nothing, based on no facts, based on a distortion of the law and a distortion of science, that the FDA had failed to adequately assess the safety of this drug. Again, keep in mind, this is a medication that has been used safely and effectively for more than two decades by five million people, and it, it, it is, its efficacy rate is more than 95%. So, Lori, one question I have is a, a technical one that concerns standing, you know, this idea that the court can only hear certain kinds of claims by injured parties. How are the doctors in this lawsuit claiming they've been injured? Well, that's a really good question because, in fact, they have really pled no injury at all. They don't prescribe this medication. They don't treat patients for um, abortion care. They don't use this medication in treating patients. They've effectively taken the position that they may know someone who at some point had to treat a patient based on a complication um, after the patient had taken mifepristone. Now, keep in mind that no drug is risk-free, but this is a drug with a, a record of safety that is 
exceedingly safe based on the scientific studies that are before the FDA. This drug um, has serious complications almost never. And, I mean, it's safer than Tylenol, safer than Viagra. But these doctors have come to the court and they've said, well, if we had to see a patient who maybe came to our emergency room because maybe they took this drug, we might have to treat them that that would injure us. It would injure our conscience. It would injure us because it would take away our ability to treat other patients. Now, keep in mind, when you're talking about an emergency room, they treat all comers, right? This is not, you don't, just doctors, you and I don't rely on a doctor in the emergency room when we get there and they say, oh, sorry, I, I don't approve of you because you smoke or you weigh too much or whatever. These doctors are basically saying that if, they were forced to treat somebody in the very rare instance where this drug, where there was a complication based on this drug, that they would somehow be injured. That's not standing. And that, to be very clear, the, both the, the procedural, the standing arguments in this case, as well as the merits, have been roundly criticized across the ideological spectrum. You can go to the most conservative jurists and find that they are critical of this effort to claim that they're standing in injury under Article 3 of the Constitution to bring this case. Hmm. Well, Lori, let's talk a little bit about the merits because there are a lot of moving parts here. And I was wondering if you could sort of walk us through the different challenges to the law and how much they really change things on the ground. So I was hoping to start with the original 2000 approval of Mifepristone. What are the challenges to it? And if the court were to side with those challengers here, what would the effects be on the ground? So thank you. That's a, a really important question. So the bottom line is is that the challengers claim that the FDA rushed the approval of this and didn't rely on science, which is utterly false. This was a drug that had been been in use overseas for years with, again, an extremely uh, safe record of use. And then in the United States, it took four years of review and consideration of the science before the FDA approved the drug in 2000. And what these plaintiffs in this case are trying to argue is that that wasn't adequate and that FDA didn't appropriately um, rely on science, didn't appropriately approve this drug. And therefore now, keep in mind the approval was in 2000, now in almost 2024, that drug should be removed from the market. So they are, this is unprecedented. Never before has a federal court ordered the Food and Drug Administration to remove approval of a drug, particularly not one with this kind of record of use and that has been um, on the market and used by so many for so long. If the plaintiffs were to prevail on that request, again, it means that Mifepristone would go off the market. This is a drug that is used in most of the abortions in this country, the majority of abortion care in this country relies on the use of mifepristone. And what these plaintiffs are asking is that the court order FDA to withdraw approval to take this drug off the market. Weren't there some amendments to the regulations around mifepristone in 2016? And can you walk us through what those were? Sure. So, I mean, as with any drug, obviously science changes, it evolves. Pharmaceutical companies invest in innovation and development, and they find ways to make drugs more effective and safer. 
And that is exactly what happened with mifepristone. So in 2016, after the drug had already been on the market for 16 years and had been safely used by so many, um, there were some updates to the conditions for use of this drug. So, for example, um, the, uh, there had been a restriction that said that um, it had to be prescribed in a healthcare setting. It had to be prescribed in a medical office um, or a hospital um, or another kind of healthcare facility. So that meant that patients had to come in person in order to pick up their mifepristone. And in 2020, so for many years, medical organizations had been pushing the FDA to lift that requirement. It was medically unnecessary. Patients were essentially having to travel long distances um, just for the sole purpose of coming in essentially to pick up their pill. And during the, the height of the pandemic in 2020, we, the ACLU, brought a lawsuit um, on behalf of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and other healthcare providers um, to get the FDA to lift that restriction so that patients wouldn't have to put themselves and their families at risk of contracting a deadly virus during the pandemic for the sole purpose of traveling to a healthcare facility to pick up the medication. Mm. And when that happened, we got that injunction. A court said that was okay. We ended up with lots of data, lots of experience to show and demonstrate the safety of patients being able to have this medication mailed to them in their homes so that they could take it wherever was safest and best for them. And as a result of that and other data that was collected and presented um, in abundance to the FDA, the FDA in initially in 2021 lifted that in-person dispensing requirement for the remainder of the pandemic and then ultimately lifted it permanently in January of 2023. Again, the plaintiffs in this case are making an argument that somehow that is not safe, that somehow we, the, the FDA overlooked some kind of study, which it did not, um, and that therefore that restriction should be reimposed, that patients should no longer be permitted to receive this drug um, at home by mail from their healthcare provider or from a certified mail order pharmacy. What that means for many patients is that they will be forced to travel hundreds of miles but in some cases, again, for the sole purpose of picking up their pill. They can still have a telehealth visit mm. with their provider. They can still be assessed where eligible, where appropriate um, by the healthcare provider, not in a, an in-person setting, but they might still have to travel hundreds of miles, again, for the sole purpose of picking up a pill and taking it home and taking it there. There is absolutely no scientific basis for, for reimposing these old restrictions that were in place, again, prior to 2016 and prior to 2021. So it sounds like there are a lot of options for the Supreme Court. And coming up on the program, we'll talk more about that and the challenge to the abortion drug mifepristone with Lori Shaden, a senior staff attorney at the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? 
With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Catch the program weekdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. We've been speaking with the ACLU's Lori Chayton about the court battle over the abortion drug Mifepristone. Lori, I wanted to step back and take stock of what the landscape is um, following the court's 2022 decision in the Dobbs case, you know, where the Supreme Court undid uh, federal abortion rights, rolling back Roe versus Wade. Um, how have the states responded to that decision? Well, I think that it's fair to say that quite a number of them have responded quite badly and in a way that is incredibly harmful for their residents. We have seen more than 20 states either ban or heavily restrict abortion since the Dobbs decision. And that just means that for patients in those states, again, in order to access abortion care, they'll be required to travel long, long distances in order to access the critical health care that they need. And for many, that means that they won't get this care at all, that they'll be forced to carry a pregnancy to term against their will because they simply cannot arrange the logistical, make the logistical arrangements and the financial arrangements and the personal life arrangements that are needed in order to travel out of state and sometimes through multiple states in order to access care. The other thing, the other thing that we're seeing is that a, quite a number of states are passing laws to shore up and to bolster protections for reproductive health care, protections for abortion care, to try to help providers in their states ensure that they can try to meet the demand for abortion care. But the demand, make no mistake, the demand is mighty. And there's been just this huge influx of patients coming from banned states to access care. What that means is that for patients, even in states that do support abortion rights and that do, do um, uh, take steps to try to ensure access to abortion. There are long delays in some cases for people seeking abortion care. And in many cases, we've seen actually since Dobbs, pregnancy complications are increasing because patients aren't able to get the care that they need. Hmm. The other thing I want to mention is that in some of these states that are banning abortion, they are going to such extreme lengths that patients aren't able to actually get basic OBGYN care that they need. Patients who are pregnant and are facing health-threatening and life-threatening complications are often being denied that care. And they're being denied that care because their health care providers are facing the risk of criminal prosecution if they somehow draw the line wrong, if they somehow say, yes, my patient is sick enough and therefore I'm going to treat them and then they are facing the threat that they'll be prosecuted. And the other impact that is really, has been really sad is seeing that in some of these states, Idaho is a perfect example, maternity care is just shutting down. Hmm. There are 
OBGYNs are leaving the state. They're not willing to practice under those circumstances. And frankly, hospitals are shutting down their maternity practices. And so, again, we have maternity deserts in places like Idaho, in places like Alabama. All of this is phenomenally harmful to pregnant people, and it particularly um, impacts in a negative way those who are already facing um, Mm. serious risks because of Structural racism in our healthcare systems already being denied access to healthcare. People who are people of color, people who live with low income, people in rural communities. Frankly, even in some of the rural communities in states that are more supportive, right. continue to have access problems. Right. I wonder, too, one of the outcomes from the court's 2022 decision in Dobbs, at least as anticipated by the justices in the majority, was that they were going to return this issue of abortion back over to elected officials instead of to, you know, unelected judges. But this Mephipristone case that we've been talking about seems to sort of fly in the face of that, right? I mean, the courts here are being asked to second guess the decisions of, you know, executive branch officials. So what did the Supreme Court mean when it said the issue was being turned back over to elected officials? Well, that's a good question because, as you know, this Mifepristone case is intended to try to remove from the market this drug that's used in most abortions in the country. That means remove it from the market in Illinois and in New York and in California And those are all states, and there are many others, that are taking great steps to try to protect access. And yet, we have this lawsuit where these anti-abortion doctors have gone to an anti-abortion judge to try to impose a ruling that would affect, quite negatively, abortion care throughout the entire country. And make no mistake, this is about anti-abortion opponents trying to ban abortion nationwide. This is just one step in their campaign to deny people throughout this country abortion care, to deny people the ability to make the medical decisions that are best for them and their families. So, Lori, this case has already been up to the Supreme Court once this year on an emergency request, and the justices sort of put everything on hold while the case makes its way uh, through the judicial system. So uh, what's the status of these drugs and their availability right now? Well, as a result of the stay that the Supreme Court entered, nothing has changed in terms of the availability of the medication. So today, and I want to be clear about this for the listeners, People can access medication abortion using mifepristone today. There are no limits as a result of this case. Having said that, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the most conservative court in the country, has entered an order that would impose some of these quite severe old restrictions that the FDA long ago concluded were not necessary. And That decision is now before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is deciding, as we sit here, whether it will review that decision from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, whether it will review the decision from the district court, um, and re-examine the FDA's approval of Mifepristone. So there is a lot at stake here. We are waiting to hear from the court to see whether it is going to take this case and leave it stay in place whether it's going to deny review of this case 
and lift it, say, or whether it will take some other kind of action. Hmm. You know, I, I wonder if you get the sense that some of the justices are eager to hear another abortion case um, so close to the Dobbs decision, or if you think they would have been happy to let the issue sort of percol- percolate in the states for a bit longer, um, but the Fifth Circuit's opinion has uh, may sort of force their hand. Well, I think that that's probably right. I don't. I can't obviously speak for what they what they want and what they feel, but I would imagine that they aren't excited about taking up another abortion case this soon. But having said that, the Fifth Circuit's opinion is just so extreme; it is so beyond the pale that we know that at least five justices voted to have this stay put in place, meaning that it's holding the Fifth Circuit's decision in abeyance through any type of review from the Supreme Court. So, Lori, what are the next steps and what do you see happening with this case at the Supreme Court? We, as I said, are waiting to hear whether the court is granting a writ of certiorari. If it does that, it could go two ways. One is that it could grant review of part of the case or it could grant review of the whole case because there are actually a number of of cert petitions that are pending. We would expect based on the stay that it entered last spring, that it will keep that stay in place, that basically unless it says something different, that stay will remain in place, which means there will be no change to the provision of medication abortion and other care using mifepristone while the case continues to make its way through briefing. And if they grant cert soon, that case should be able to be briefed and fully argued and decided this term. But the court doesn't have to. It's not on, there's no deadline for it to decide whether to take a case. And it can do something called relisting. It can keep deciding. It can keep putting it back from conference to conference to decide whether it will take the case. And if it waits too much longer, then the case would not be able to be decided this term. All right. Well, thanks to Lori Chayton of the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, we'll talk about the ongoing efforts to oust the federal judiciary's oldest active judge. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Catch us weekdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. In for June Grasso. Let's get now to that ongoing saga to remove the federal judiciary's oldest active judge from the bench. Joining us to discuss it all is Michael Shapiro, a senior reporter at Bloomberg Law, who writes about intellectual property litigation and covers the federal circuit. So, Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So can you start off by telling us why the federal circuit judge, uh, Pauline Newman, has been suspended from taking new cases? How was that decision made and, and what exactly happened there? Sure. So you're both aware that Judge Newman was suspended. Um, what some people might fail to appreciate if they're not following this really closely, 
She has been suspended a number of different times under different legal authority. Uh, Some of those suspensions have run concurrently, and I can get back to that in a bit. But what apparently kicked everything off were two health-related events. According to the chief judge for the Federal Circuit, Kimberly Moore, Newman suffered some kind of a cardiac event back in 2021, the summer. That was followed by an alleged fainting spell that she had after an oral argument session that was held in 2022. Newman has denied both of those things, at least in the way that they're described by Moore. So exactly what happened there is still a little bit hazy, but by March of 2023, Judge Moore has started an investigation into Judge Newman. She's apparently heard from court staff, judges, some combination of the two at this point that Newman might be suffering from, quote, impairment of cognitive abilities, unquote. And that sort of goes to things like attention, focus, and memory. Moore says at this point that Newman was routinely making statements in open court and during deliberative proceedings demonstrated a lack of awareness over the issues in her cases. Hmm. So we know that Judge Newman is challenging the suspension or some of the suspensions, wherever we are in that process. Um, Mm -hmm. Who did she sue and what is she arguing in the lawsuit? Sure. Well, yeah, just to be clear, she has um, disputed a lot of the facts uh, of this case. She's done that. There's kind of an administrative process that's going on. And at the same time, she filed this lawsuit against her colleagues. She has said, you know, I'm 100% fit to be a judge. Um, I I can do this job for two more years. Um, And she thinks her colleagues are are motivated not by concerns about her fitness, but but that she's independent and she's a dissenter on the court. So there is this kind of administrative court process. Um, What's much rarer is for a judge who is being investigated for some kind of misconduct or disability to go outside of that system and sue. But that's exactly what Newman has done here. Um, She is, if if nothing else, kind of fierce and independent. And so so perhaps it's in keeping with with that character that she um, is really taking an aggressive approach. Um, But she went ahead and she sued judges that were on a special investigative committee that looked into the complaint of this alleged disability. She did that in the District of D.C. And so she is suing her colleagues, basically, trying to get reinstated and, and making arguments about the statute under which she's being investigated, as well as the manner in which that investigation was carried out. So, Michael, can you back up a little bit and give us some background uh, both on Judge Newman and the Federal Circuit Court? Just remind our listeners, uh, what are the types of cases that this court hears most often? Yeah, I can. And, and sort of the story of Judge Newman's time as a judge and the Federal Circuit start around the same time. She was the first presidential appointment to this court called the Federal Circuit. Federal Circuit is a specialized appellate court, and it has exclusive jurisdiction over several real niche categories of law, and and those include government contract disputes, veterans' benefits cases, and importantly to Judge Newman, patents. The court was formed back in 1982. Um, Back then, Newman, she's a chemist. She became a lawyer. She became a big patent lawyer at a company called FMC, which made pesticides, among other things. And 
and she was on an advisory board that said, you know, there should be a specialized patent appeals court. Um, that court was created in 1982 as the federal circuit, and two years later, she was appointed by Ronald Reagan to that court. So it seems to me that it's got to be pretty awkward for these colleagues on the bench to be fighting. How have Judge Newman's colleagues responded to the lawsuit? And how does Judge Newman feel about the case? I mean, has it created any tension on the bench? Well, let me, yeah, let me start with her colleagues. They're all members of this judicial council. Every, every appellate, every circuit court and the district courts within it have what are called judicial councils, and they get tasked, among other things, with disability and misconduct investigations. So for the federal circuit, this specialized appellate court, uh, the active members are the judicial council, and so she is suing them. Um, and they suspended her, so she's also... And they did that because she's not cooperating with the investigation. They want her to sit for neurological testing um, with their choice of a doctor, and she hasn't done that. But we don't really know what individual judges on that court, who are also kind of members of this council, um, have said, except through these formal filings. Um, they're represented by the Department of Justice in her lawsuit challenging the the suspension and investigation. Um, so we get to see those briefs. But as far as what have individual judges said, they they haven't spoken publicly. Um, Newman, however, has, has spoken publicly. Um, right. Many times when these investigations happen, they happen informally and quietly. But she felt like there was an injustice here. And her and her lawyers filed a public lawsuit, for one thing, but also talked about their dispute of, of what's being alleged against her. Michael, didn't the Federal Circuit try to resolve this issue informally? And what did that look like? And how did it escalate to where we are now? Yeah, I, well, I can say that, like, many of these disability investigations, you don't hear about them, even if they're disputed, that that happens sort of in this internal process through the courts. And maybe at the end of that, you see sort of a document with people's initials that talk about what was alleged, but you, you don't even know the judge. Um, that sort of internal process had started, and at a certain point, um, the press started hearing from supporters of the judge that she was being targeted in an investigation. Um, a lawsuit is then filed by Judge Newman, and she did some interviews um, so it, it became public, um, whether it would have been carried out behind the scenes, I, I don't know, but, but ultimately the court may have felt like they kind of had to tell their side publicly since the counter-arguments were being aired publicly, and they posted a fair bit of information from the investigation and the, case, the internal case on, on the court's website, which I'm told is, is kind of unheard of in these mm. times. So, Michael, a couple of times you've hinted at the sort of internal process that uh, can go on. Is there Are there a set of rules or a process that goes on when there's a situation for whatever reason that a judge can no longer perform their duties? Yeah, there, there absolutely is a set of rules. There, there was a statute passed in 1980 called the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act, and it sort of sets out this framework, and courts can investigate complaints against judges. That can be for 
misconduct, uh, like the like the name of the statute suggests, bribery, conflicts of interest, judges abusing their staff, or something along those lines. But it also has a disability um, component to it. So if there's allegations that somebody is not well but is serving as a judge, that can be investigated too. Those investigations get carried out by these regional circuit courts themselves or by the federal circuit in D.C. And there's an appeals process, but that's not uh, a traditional court. It's to the judicial conference, and that's sort of the policymaking board for the federal court system, mm-hmm. led by John Ro- just Chief Justice John Roberts. Michael, have you ever heard of anything playing out like this so publicly? I mean, is this or is this just really unprecedented at this point? You know, there are experts in um, the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act, and they say, really, it's it's unusual to have such a public dispute. Um, There's not a lot of case law over how the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act works for that reason. So it's sort of interesting and in an academic way that there's a lawsuit and, and there's all this public discussion about it. But yeah, the word you just hear how how exceptionally rare it is um, to have it playing out publicly, especially on a disability matter where you know that gets into somewhat sensitive questions about health. And, and for the most part, you know, we think about those things being somewhat private. So, where does this case stand now? Is Judge Newman hearing cases on the bench still? Is she um, is she is she being reinstated? Can you kind of give us the lay of the land? Sure. Um, against Judge Newman's will, she um, does not have cases anymore. She was allowed to continue on in the cases that she had. Um, but at a certain point in the investigation, she was suspended from new, getting new cases. That's what she's been challenging in her lawsuit. And then in September, she was suspended for a year for her uh, alleged refusal to cooperate with the investigation itself. So she doesn't have cases. Um, she has been you know, going to patent law events, and she's really has this celebrated career and a lot of, a lot of very public backers who are fond of her. Um, but, but at this point, she hasn't had a new case in a while. And so wonder sort of what's next in this saga. I mean, what do you expect to happen, you know, either publicly or privately after yeah. this? Yeah, well, most of the briefing uh, is, is done to the uh, district court judge, Christopher Cooper in D.C. Um, they have briefed uh, this motion to intervene and a motion to dismiss, or excuse me, not a motion to intervene, but a, an injunction that Judge Newman is seeking as well as her colleagues' effort to dismiss her case. Um, There is one more case deadline this week, and then that will be ripe for the judge to either decide whether the lawsuit can go forward or whether something has to be done to somehow give her some some kind of duties back as a judge. Parallel to that, there's this kind of more internal process at the judicial conference where Judge Newman is also fighting uh, the suspension, the ultimate suspension that was issued in her case. They meet, they convene like twice a year, the judge judges who sit on this special committee of the Judicial Conference, and they don't tend to do much 
publicly, except they eventually will issue decisions at the very end of their process. So that's that's tough to predict the timing of. But those two things are still both sitting out there. Michael, Judge Newman is, correct me if I'm wrong, 96 years old. Um, you know, some people might look at that and say, why not just, you know, call it a day and and, and you had a good career and, and be done with it? What does Judge Newman say to, I'm sure, what she's hearing are some of those criticisms? She says that she is in good shape um, and she thinks that what this court does, what she does as a judge is really important. She has, she has a voice and, and a voice that, you know, should be part of the process. Um, she is not the only older judge on this court, and I, I think she probably would say, although I don't want to speculate, that if, if she really didn't think she was well, she wouldn't do it. But she she doesn't. She thinks that it's it's kind of a concocted case and, and that she's judging just like she was. Well, that's Bloomberg Law's Michael Shapiro, and that does it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.